The tale is told that there was once a little turtle. And he lived in kind of a muddy lowland area. But every once in a while, a couple of ducks would come by and they would speak of this beautiful pond some distance away. Filled with fish, clear water, lily pads, chirping birds. And this turtle desperately wanted to get to that pond, but he knew that he was a turtle and he wasn't built to travel very far. And so he wasn't able to get to this dreamy heavenly place that everyone was speaking of. But there were two very, very benevolent ducks that he was speaking to one day. And the duck said, Hey, we got a plan. We got this stick. And what we're proposing is that we're going to clamp our bills onto each end of the stick and you can clamp your beak onto the center and we'll fly you to the pond. So you can see this wonderful pond that we were talking about. And he thought that would be a great idea. And so one duck on one end, one duck on the other end, the turtle in the middle, he clamps on and up, up and away he goes. Well, he was amazed at what he'd seen. He'd never been up in the air before. And just to see the, the pasture and the farmland and the forests and the trees from such a lofty place was truly a, a marvel to him. And he felt like he was the king of the world. In fact, before long, a crow flew by and the crow said, wow, I've never seen a turtle flying. You must be like the king of the turtles. And the turtle's heart was filled with pride as he felt that he was doing something that no turtle had ever done before. And then he made this mistake and said, well, certainly I am. Now it was the end of the turtle. Now, in the book of Obadiah, there's only one chapter. In verse 4, God actually has something very similar to say. Addressing the issue of pride, here's what it says in God's word. Though you soar aloft like the eagle, though your nest is set among the stars. From there, I will bring you down, declares the Lord. Pride brought about the end of that poor little turtle. And pride has taken down many nations, many families, many churches, and many individuals ever since. I'm starting a series of messages this year that I'm calling full council. We're going to give some of the series uh, series within that series some different titles. But today we're going to look at a book that is rarely preached. So what I've done is I, this summer I went through all my old Sunday morning messages back to like 1993. And I wanted to know, are there any books of the Bible that I've never preached from on a Sunday morning. And I discovered there are seven books of the Bible. And in Acts chapter 20, verse 27, Paul said this, for I did not shrink back from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. In other words, all of God's word, even the corners, the obscure books are profitable and beneficial. And for whatever reason, there's some books I've never gotten to. So this year, we're going to look at those seven books Today, we're going to start off with the book of Obadiah. How many of you have ever heard a sermon from Obadiah? Hands in the air. Nobody. See, it's, it's an, one. Okay, we have one person that's heard a sermon from Obadiah. So we're going to look at Obadiah today, and it's going to take us a whole week. 
to preach it because it's pretty short. So this is like a one-week sermon. But in Obadiah, Obadiah really addresses the issue of pride and God's perspective on pride. In fact, God, God gets pretty upset when we grow prideful. And he has something to say about it. And this is a book that's probably in and around 2,600 years old. Different context, different culture, written in a different language, different circumstances, obviously. But the kernel message of the book is as applicable today as it was in the 6th century BC. And really, in this book, what we're going to learn is that the way up is not up. The way up is down. If we try to claw ourselves forward in life, climb the proverbial ladder of life, fame, fortune, popularity, whatever, and we think that that's the means of getting ahead, God's going to tear us down. But if you want to be elevated, as Jesus was, you got to walk in the footsteps of Jesus. And Jesus walked in the footsteps of humility. And the scriptures, even before Jesus ever set foot on this planet in human form, calls us to a life marked by humility. So I would say this is a bit of a timeless message and one that I need to hear and that we all need to hear. So let's talk a little bit about Obadiah. Generally, when we start a new book, we want to give people a little bit of a a background. So Obadiah was a Jewish prophet. We don't know for sure when he was writing. I think it was about 600 years before Jesus. Obadiah is a Jewish prophet, but his audience are not believers. His audience is a sister nation, a brother nation to Israel known as Edom. The Edomites were descendants of Esau. Esau was also a descendant of Abraham. So we have Abraham, we have Isaac, we have Jacob, and we're following that line for the Jewish people. But we also know that Esau came into the mix. So Esau is the forefather of the Edomites. And for the most part, there were a few skirmishes along the way. I think David had a war with the Edomites, but for the most part, the Edomites don't cause a great deal of problem for the Jews. There's not a lot of fighting between them. But in and around the sixth century, some problems arose and God grew very upset with the Edomites who usually at peace with the the Israelis committed some horrible acts against them. And as we consider the specifics of their sin, we'll look at that. We'll see that in the text. More important to that, because different time, different culture, different place. I'd like us to consider the root cause of their sin, because that's timeless. That's timeless. Here's what it says in the first verse of Obadiah. Thus says the Lord God concerning Edom. We have heard a report from the Lord. Pause. Anything unusual about how that verse is structured that jumps out at you? And there's a peculiar, peculiar little word here. It's the word we. So God is speaking. He's referring to himself as we. And we're like, I didn't know we were polytheists. I thought there was just one God. That's true. There's only one God. But because God is majestic, sometimes he refers to himself in the plural much like the queen might. When she says we, she actually means me. But she says we, because she uses the plural of majesty. So what's going on here is that 
God is elevating his majestic role. But that aside, there's something in the structure of the verse that I kind of had to read and reread and mull over a few times before I really understood what's being said. So look at it again. Thus says the Lord God concerning Edom. We don't know what God's going to say yet, but God's going to say something about Edom. Then we have this phrase that comes after. We have heard a report. So God has heard a report from who? From the Lord. Okay, just a second. God's giving the report. God's receiving the report. So God's reporting to God. Kind of odd, isn't it? But what's going on here is that as God is about to deliver a pronouncement of judgment against Edom, he reveals to us the source of his information. Who's the source of God's information about all things? The source of God's information is God. God is the one that sees all things. God is his own authority. So God doesn't have to call a private detective to find out what's going on with the Edomites. He doesn't have to send in a spy. He doesn't have to check social media. He doesn't have to call the local newspaper man. He doesn't have to call for an angel to tell him what's going on. God already knows all things. And so in the opening verse, not only do we have a veiled reference to the, maje- the majesty of God, but we have an implied reminder of his authority that God judges based upon what he sees and he sees all things. Why is this important? Because we live in a world filled with false reports and false information. Now, we're also told a lot of truth. But we're always a little bit skeptical because we're like, I'm not really sure I believe the source. We have this weird thing now called fake news. Really? People write fake articles about things that never happened and publish them. We also have unsubstantiated allegations. People can say things about you on social media and they may not be true. And people start to believe them. You're like, what in the world? How do I stop this? Too bad. It's been tweeted and retweeted a thousand times now. We have... Biased scientific reports, nothing wrong with good science, but there's some science that's, that's garbage. That's telling us things that aren't true. And how do we know that? Because every once in a while, a scientist comes out and says, we were wrong. This is the new findings. But when the report first comes out, you're, you're made to think, oh, it's 100% airtight. But then it keeps changing. We have reports of fraudulent financial audits. The point of all this is you can't always trust what you hear from people. But if you have a report and it's signed at the bottom, God, guess what? It's 100% accurate. God's assessment of Edom is 100% accurate. God's assessment of you and of me is 100% accurate. So in social relationships, we can learn to be posers, can't we? I can learn ways of presenting myself to you, just sort of, sort of shedding light on the positive side and not allowing you to see my dark side. We can fake it till we make it. We can be inauthentic. We can lie. And other people might actually believe that. But when we stand before God, we always stand before God exposed. God knows our hearts. 
So as we hear God's words of judgment against Edom today, let's make sure we are assessing our own lives because we can fake it with one another. But God knows who we truly are and how we truly think. So what was, or what were the sins that Edom committed? Really, there's two kinds of sins. I'm going to borrow classic language to explain these. The first kinds of sin is what we would call sins of commission. So they did something that they shouldn't have done. And the specific sin that they did was the sin of violence. In verse 10, it says, because of the violence done to your brother Jacob, that's another word for Israel. Shame shall cover you and you shall be cut off. We don't know what the violent act was, but we know that when God pronounced judgment upon them, he was upset at some violent warlike, presumably warlike act that they had committed against Israel. And God calls them out for that. But interestingly, there's another kind of sin that they commit. And we would call it a sin of omission. They didn't do something that they should have done. What is it that they didn't do that they should have done? They should have said something when they saw Israel suffering. But instead, they stayed silent. They became aloof. They were standoffish. Verse 11 reads, On that the day that you stood aloof, on the day that strangers carried off his wealth and foreigners entered his gates and cast lots for Jerusalem, you were like one of them. So the wording of the text suggests they weren't the ones actually carrying off the wealth or entering the gates or casting lots, but rather at the beginning of the verse, they're standing aloof. And at the end, God says, well, you're kind of like them. So what event would this be referring to? In 586, the legions of Babylon came down through the fertile crescent down into the land of Israel and they conquered and captured the Jews and deported them to Babylon. And just across the Jordan river, there were the Edomites watching it all happen. Their brethren, their cousins, and they didn't lift a finger to help. This is the sin of silence or passivity in the middle of great calamity. If you look down in the passage, verses 12, 13, and 14 also indicates that they may have participated in rounding up their brothers to pass them off to the enemy. So perhaps the violence that they were referred, that is referred to in this book you picture the nations being attacked. People are running helter skelter. People are trying to get away. And there's this flood of, let's call them refugees trying to get out of Jerusalem. And the Edomites are blocking them off, rounding them up, passing them over to the Babylonians. And God sees this. And he, he learns of their behavior through his sovereign omnipotence. And he threatens them with destruction. God is serious about sin. And we could have an ethical conversation today. We could say, okay, let's create two scenarios. Ethicists love to create scenarios. So let's create two scenarios. Scenario A 
is you go get a pickaxe and you run out and you kill someone. How bad is that? Scale of one to 10. Oh, it's a nine. It's a 10. You know, whatever. We have a conversation about that. That's terrible. Okay. Scenario number two is your buddy grabs a pickaxe and says, I'm going to go kill someone. And he's smaller than you. And you know, you can take him down and you do nothing. And then he goes and kills someone. How bad is that? And we can have a conversation about that. That's an eight. That's a nine. That's equally bad. God assesses the Edomites along those lines as you've committed an act of violence. That's a strike against you. You've stood aloof doing nothing. You know what that means? You are like them. That means you've sinned too. So here we have God speaking out, not just against sins of commission, but also sins of omission. God is concerned when people stand back and do nothing. The Bible says you stood aloof. That means you just didn't care. Verses 12 to 14 says, do not gloat, do not rejoice, do not loot, do not hand over survivors. Why does God say that? Because they did some of that, at least the handing over survivors. And they're responsible because of it. So consider your own life. You may say, you know what? I'm good with God because I'm not involved in any heinous, sinful activities. But do you ever speak out when someone's abused? Do you ever step in? Do you ever step up? When someone else is in need. Remember the miniseries band of brothers. Love it. Watch it several times. There's a scene near to the end of that miniseries when the American soldiers are basically uh, Germany has, has pretty much been defeated. There's a few little skirmishes going on and they, they enter into um, a city and they go into the home. One of the guys goes into the home of this German woman And he sees that she has a picture of an officer on her mantle. And it's clearly her husband. And the place is pretty nice. And she comes out all sophisticated. And she gives him like the stink eye. And he just kind of leaves the house. And then shortly thereafter, a couple of the soldiers are out meandering through the woods on patrol. And they come out into this open air. And they're like, what in the world is this? And they discover a concentration camp. And so they, they call up the forces. And the guys go out. And... Hundreds of people are there. There's, there's piles of bodies, rotting corpses. The place reeks. They got to put masks on their faces. And everyone that's alive looks like a skeleton with skin stretched over it. I mean, these people are in terrible condition. And as they start to help these people, the soldiers decide to go back to the city and conscript the citizens that live nearby to come and clean up the corpses. And there's one scene where the soldier who had previously gone into this sophisticated noble woman's home looks down into one of the trenches and there she is. And she's struggling with the corpse to try to pull it out. And as he looks her in the eye, she looks back and it's like, read between the lines, you're guilty of this. You participated in this genocide. Why do the soldiers conscript these poor innocent citizens? Because they're not innocent. They knew what was going on and they did nothing. Likewise, the Edomites could see the smoke rising from Jerusalem and they did absolutely nothing. So as we consider the Christian life, we're reminded 
that God is concerned with our open sin, but he's also concerned with our passivity toward sin. So we are our brother's keeper. We are responsible for the welfare of other people. When others suffer, suffer and we see it, we're called to act. The Bible even says in the New Testament that a man that does not provide for his own is worse than an infidel. This is speaking of believers. Think about that for a minute. Think of what's an infidel, someone who's damned eternally. God says, if there's a man and he has a family member that's in need and he does nothing for that family member, he's worse than an infidel. And a lot of times when things are going on in people's lives, like, oh, the church will deal with it or the social services agency will deal with it. No, you're first and foremost responsible to deal with your immediate family needs. But beyond that, we're responsible for other people in a broader venue. We're, we're part of a global community, as they say. And we sometimes become aware of things that are taking place around the world. Now, the Canadian response is, is generally passivity, right? We love to be passive peacemakers. And sometimes that can be good. But if our default response is always just a smile or a frown, we just, we just issue a report. We strongly condemn whosoever for slaughtering all the people in their village. Really? Yeah, and he's going to stop because we issued a statement. Passivity can be, living at peace can be good, but other times it's not good. We need to step up and get active. We need to put our lives on the line to spend our money, our time to help people whose lives are being destroyed. A smile or a frown are often not enough. By way of application, if we hear of someone being abused or falsely accused, we should act. And it cuts both ways. Some people are abused and some people are falsely accused of being abusers. We should act. We should stand for the welfare of those that are unable to work. And we should also speak out against those that are stealing money that aren't working. If an innocent life is taken, we should say something. As we preached a few weeks ago, God's moral law applies to everyone. Read Romans 1, 2, and 3. It applies to everyone, not just Christians. God's moral law applies to everyone. And therefore, when governments who are appointed by God shirk or abandon God's moral law, which applies to everyone, they should be held accountable for that. You could say it this way. We're accountable for what we commit, and we're also accountable for what we permit. We're accountable for sins of commission, and we're responsible for sins of omission. So if God were to assess your life as he's assessing the Edomites, would he be happy or horrified? Would he be like, wow, this person really is living in a loving, generous way that's conscientious of the needs of others. Or would he be like, man, you're like the Edomites. You're just overlooking it. You're not doing anything. Look what you're allowing to happen under your nose and your generation on your watch. Now this question is more than theoretical because the God that sees everything sees you and he sees me and he knows my heart. And he knows what I do or what I don't do. And when we think about God's assessment of us, we need to ask, whose side are we on? Are we redemptive agents? 
Do we understand that we are stewards, that we are representatives, that we are agents of the King of King and the Lord of Lords? Or is it possible that we've shirked that responsibility and tried to pass that off to others? Back to the beginning of the passage, verse two reads, behold, this is God's judgment. I will make you small among the nations. You shall be utterly despised. So this is a quite a, quite a judgment that God gives to Edom. I'm going to shrink your numbers and I'm going to make people hate your guts. This is God's judgment. It's like, well, why, why would God be so harsh with them? Why would God judge them in this way? Because of the source of their sin. So now we're coming back to the beginning of the message again. The source of the sin is clearly identified in verses three and four. I would say this is the heart of the book. The pride of your heart has deceived you. You who live in the clefts of the rock in your lofty dwelling, who say in your heart, who will bring me down to the ground? That's arrogance. Though you soar aloft like the eagle, though your nest is set among the stars from there, I will bring you down, declares the Lord. What's the source of their sin? Pride. What is pride? Is pride being courageous? No, because in Joshua 1, we're told to be strong and courageous. Is, is humil- does humility mean that you're pushover? No, because their pride led to their passivity. What is pride? And what is humility? We could say that Pride is self-interest to the exclusion of others. Why could we say that? Because it, it, it is true that we, we need to spend some time thinking about ourselves. You have to care for yourself. I have to think about the fact that I'm feeling hungry. I need to go find some food. I'm thirsty. I need to go find something to drink. It's cold. I better go put a coat on. We have to take care of ourselves take care of our bodies, our possessions. It's all part of being a good steward. You have a life. You need to take care of yourself and what God has entrusted to you. But when you take care of yourself to the exclusion of others, often in a way that brings pain upon others, that's pride. It's seeking to put yourself above others. That's why the text kind of speaks of it, like the lofty position up in the cleft, up in your secure place, up which is supposed to point us to the majesty of God can also point us to our desire to elevate ourselves above above others. It's the opposite of humility. And we see here the poison of pride in verse three. First of all, why does it poison us? Because pride deceives us. You see that at the beginning of verse three, it deceives us. It's deceptive. How is pride deceptive? Because when you're prideful, we think to ourselves, okay, if I, if I do this, or I say this, or I you know, one-up this guy, or I win this, or I accumulate this, that's going to advance me. It's going to push me forward. It's going to satisfy me. Pride is deceptive because it doesn't have the capacity to do that. It may increase your social ranking, but you experience the mighty, wrathful judgment of God. So it's deceptive. It's like a false advertiser. It promises you a net benefit and it never delivers. That's why pride is deceptive. 
And we need to watch for it because it sneaks and creeps its way into our lives, fills our heads with lies and then never delivers. Secondly, pride puts us above others. The Bible says you live in a cleft. You are in a lofty place. Now this is a historical, fascinating historical possibility. There's a city in the country of Jordan today called Petra right next door across the Jordan to Israel. And it's carved into a rock. It's in a very dry area, but whoever built Petra and the different nations that inhabited that area were masters at collecting rainwater. So they would, they would just rain occasionally and they would have these carved out areas in the rock that would collect large amounts of water. And it's quite a beautiful place. Um, it's possible that the Edomites either built that or at some point lived there. And it was very, very secure, very difficult to conquer. That's why they're, they're, it's not really ruins. It's kind of, kind of still all intact. It might be that they were there in some other hill-like location like Mount Seir. And as Obadiah, through God, prophesies against me, he's like, oh, look at, look at your geography. Like, you, you feel like you're pretty secure. You're... I mean, look at Israel down there. They just got sacked by the Babylonians. No one could touch us. I mean, we're in this secure fortress-like place. God's like, oh, I'm going to take you down. I'm going to take you down. What, what benefit is there to living our lives above others? You know what it does? It destroys relationships. Being in a lofty, elevated place destroys relationships. They say relation, every relationship is a give and take. I prefer to say give and receive, because take is a little presumptuous, a little grabby. Receive is more of the reception of something generous, I think. But every relationship involves a back and forth. Right? So think about the relationships you're in. If you're married, think about your spouse, your kids, your relationship to me as your pastor, my relationship to you to your neighbors. Every relationship is like a back and forth. So there's, there's offenses and then there's forgiveness. There are gifts given and gifts received. There's love expressed. There is service given. There's mercy. Back and forth, back and forth. Every relationship is a give and take. And the more equality there is in that relationship, the more willingness there is to give and to receive. But as soon as someone tries to jump above the other, what does that do? That destroys, that disables service and generosity and love and mercy and forgiveness. What does pride do? It comes into a relationship and it tries to take and oftentimes tries to steal something from the other person for the benefit of the thief. And the result then is when we elevate ourselves ab above others, think about this church track with me. We think people will be impressed, but they leave insulted. We think people will recognize us, but they walk away feeling resentful. You know, Gandhi the Hindu teacher struggled with the caste system in Hinduism. 
And earlier on in his life, when he was getting kind of fed up with the caste system, he actually decided to go to a church. And he went into a church as an Indian, primarily populated with Europeans. And one of the first things he's heard is, you should probably go and worship with your own kind. And so he left the church. And then he spent the rest of his life trying to reform Hinduism, a dead, lifeless religion. But you think about that. Pride can manifest itself in extreme ways, even among God's people through racism. That should make us want to throw up. It can also manifest itself in other areas through, I don't know, well, you're not in our social level, so you shouldn't go to our church. Or you don't look like me or act like me. I don't want this person in my small group. They're kind of, they're a little different. And we can become very discriminant in a negative way. What is the source of all that? Trying to elevate ourselves. I want to protect my stature, my skin color, my stature, whatever it might be. And so I push other people away. And the net result of that is brokenness and frustration and resentment. And these are the things God is calling us out of. Gandhi says, if Christians have castes, I think I'll just remain a Hindu. We need reminders of this regularly because in our immaturity, in our humanness, we just kind of keep going back to it so often and trying to elevate ourselves and one-up other people. And God just graciously calls it out for what it is. It's sin. And it's because God is a gracious God that he's calling us to a better way of living, a better ethic. And it's the way of love. Before we see the way of love on display, especially in Jesus' life, there's one more point I want to make from verse 3. And that is one of the dangers of pride is that it makes us feel invincible. And here we see that in the lives of the Edomites. Who can touch us? Nobody can take us down. Talk about deceptive. God's like, maybe other people can't touch you, but I'm going to grab hold of you. And I'm going to rip you down. I'm going to make you small. I'm going to make you hated among the nations. So it kind of raises the question, do you actually want to live your life hated? Do you want to live your life robbed of blessing? Then pursue pride. And that's what you're going to receive for it. But if you want to be blessed by God, and who among us would not want to be blessed by the benevolence of God? And if we want meaningful relationships, then what we need to do is to cast pride aside and embrace humility. The way up is not up. The way to be exalted is down. Philippians chapter two, Jesus. Well, let me ask you this question. Do you think that Jesus has a few good reasons to brag? I think so. Jesus could say, I'm the creator of the world. I know everything. I can perform miracles. I can raise people from the dead. I'm eternal. I think all the things Jesus can brag about. 
He's got reason to brag. He's the creator God. But because of his love for us, his unnecessary love for us, by the way, his undeserved love for us. I love this word. He condescended. Like he, he dropped down from a long, 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 long way away. And he came and lived among us as a man. And speaking of Jesus incarnation in Philippians chapter two, let me read a couple verses here for you. Verse three, this is the application. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than ourselves. I would just say that's a lifelong pursuit and you'll never really get there. Because we, we always carry with us a little residual selfishness, but it's still the goal, right? It's the goal of our sanctification. We want to be like Jesus. We want to be like Jesus. We want to be like Jesus. I'm not quite there yet. I'm still selfish. I'm still me-centered but never lose sight of the goal of your sanctification, which is more than just your eternal life. It's conformity to the patterns that Jesus demonstrated. It's true godliness. So we have the application. And then the basis of the application is Jesus. So verse five, have this mind among yourselves. So it starts up here. It's a decision. It's a mentality. Now this mindset, have your, this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, which is yours in Christ Jesus means that supernaturally it's available to you because of what Jesus has accomplished in your life. So it's a mindset, but it's also a gift because Jesus indwells you and has actually transformed you into the image and likeness of his son. Verse eight and nine, halfway through verse eight, it says he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So that is ultimate sacrifice. He was willing to die for us. He did die for us. And not only that, but he died a very cruel death for us on a cross. And then this statement, therefore God exalted him. The way up for Jesus was also down. He was exalted because of his humility And not only does that provide us with the gift of eternal life, but it becomes the eternal example that the believer strives for. We have received bucket loads of grace. We have received so many gifts. God has been so unbelievably and undeservedly generous to us. And he's calling us to pour out some of that same generosity love and interest in others, both by avoiding sin, but also by avoiding passivity and helping people who are in need. So as we enter into this new ministry year, let's just bathe our church in an attitude of humility. And let's pray that we would walk humbly in the footsteps of Jesus, reminding ourselves that the way, the way to be exalted by God, the way to be blessed by God is to humble ourselves under his mighty hand.